But yesterday, the Alberta government uh, made it clear that they are pressing ahead with this uh, controversial idea to allow for circumstances where individuals uh, could be forced into treatment uh, against their will, essentially. The Compassionate Intervention Act would give police and family members, illegal guardians, the ability to refer adults and youth into involuntary treatment if they pose a risk to themselves and others. Does that work? What does the evidence tell us about forced recovery? So I think there's a conversation there. But as it pertains to, you know, the the heart of the problem here, all of these deaths that are occurring and the deaths that have surged 5,000% in 10 years, by the way. Uh, A new study helps us better understand this. This comes from the chief toxicologist with the office of the chief examiners, chief medical examiner's office, looking at drug concentrations in the blood of people who died of fentanyl poisoning over the last three years. What else was in their system? What's going into these drugs? We've got a contamination problem. And I think that's why a lot of the conversation has shifted to, you know, the realm of safer supply. Could we reduce these deaths? If we could reduce the exposure to this kind of contamination. So joining us to talk more about uh, both of these issues, very pleased to welcome to the program here this morning, Dr. Marty Ghosh, addictions medicine physician and associate professor at both the University of Alberta and Calgary. Dr. Ghosh, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's talk first of all about this, this study from the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner because it's important to understand what's ending up on the streets, why people are dying. What does this data tell us? So this data is very interesting because it shows us that there is multiple substances that are causing these deaths. But uh, whereas before we were thinking that certain drugs such as benzodiazepines, uh, which can cause respiratory depression and which can worsen the effects of, of, or decrease, I should say, the threshold of a potential overdose uh, from other opioids such as fentanyl, that that may not be the case. So what they found in this particular study was that the benzodiazepine levels within the blood of these individuals that passed away was at a sub-therapeutic level, meaning that it wasn't uh, at a very high concentration. But what they did see was that the fentanyl itself was at exceedingly high concentrations within the bloodstream. Um, so in terms of how this sort of affects clinical practice, and, and myself as a physician, this is very informative, is that it tells us that maybe the benzos aren't as much of a contributing factor amongst these overdoses as we had originally thought. Maybe it is more the fentanyl being at higher concentrations, uh, being more prevalent uh, in, the, in the drug supply than, than before. That's interesting. What about what's known as carfentanil? Yeah, so the, the carfentanil situation is definitely concerning right now. Uh, we are seeing it more and more in Calgary. In fact, recently we saw it at such high levels, uh, or higher levels, I should say, than we've ever seen before. Um, but that being said, it wasn't really commented on as, as per se in the in the toxicology reports, although it is an increasing trend and is much more potent than fentanyl and something that we feel is sort of spiking this recent surge in deaths that we're seeing, especially in Calgary. So once we have a better understanding then of what's, what's in the street drugs, what these interactions are, the impact it can have, how do we make use of that information, both in a clinical sense and, and even for users then themselves? So there, there's several different things that, that, that we can glean from this information. So right now we are seeing a higher amount of carfentanil for sure. 
We're also seeing xylazine and benzodiazepines. And uh, xylazine was something that's, you know, sort of cropped up in the media before. People have been talking about it, but we weren't entirely sure if it was being seen or not. We've seen it sporadically throughout the years, uh, but now we're starting to see it for sure. And and what's really interesting is that we feel as if there's sort of this sort of deadly cocktail, if you may, that sort of made its way into our markets where they're mixing the carfentanil, the xylazine, and the benzodiazepines together. Uh, what we've seen in the past is that there's usually, say, fentanyl in the drug supply or fentanyl and benzodiazepines uh, or fentanyl and xylazine. Never the sort of potent mix of carfentanil, benzodiazepine, and xylazines, which we think is, again, accounting for most of these deaths. Now, the other thing, too, is that uh, with the benzodiazepines in particular, what we're also seeing clinically is we're seeing more and more individuals who are going through opioid withdrawals having seizures. Seizures is very much an atypical uh, symptom of someone going through opioid withdrawal. You don't usually see seizures, um, but uh, we are seeing it more and more, and it's not because of the opioids, but it's because of the benzodiazepine contaminants that are within those opioids. Uh, and so what this has done is it's forced us to sort of change our management plans now we have to uh, treat benzodiazepine uh, withdrawal with other benzodiazepines uh, in a hospital setting, in a clinical setting. Um, so it's definitely shifted the way that we're practicing. Um, and so this information that's being shared is very important because knowing that there's subtherapeutic levels of the benzodiazepines in the bloodstream from these toxicology reports from the, the chief toxicologist office, uh, this tells us that we may not need to be as aggressive with the treatment as we once thought we were, as we once were doing. Um, so again, very informative to us. Right. Um, so when it comes to, to the overdoses that, that are occurring, then, is, is, is it because then that users don't know what they're taking, essentially? Exactly, and that's it. And so the, the public health messaging that we can provide to individuals is that there is this deadly concoction there that they should be not using alone and be using in a group or using physical supervised consumption site or as a, a secondary option, one of the, the digital options such as the Doors app. Um, but that uh, they should also maybe use a test dose, a small amount, and then go up. So these are different uh, interventions and education tips that we can provide to individuals who are using substances to ensure that they're safe. And then on the, on the flip side, uh, it also tells us as people who respond to these overdoses, say EMS, fire, or even the layperson who's responding to an overdose situation or a, a, a um, situation is that we might need to use more Narcan than we usually use. Um, and so that's very important to note is that we might need to use four to five to even sometimes six vials of Narcan, uh, whereas before we only needed to use two or three. So uh, again, very informative that, uh, that we are having to deal with these more potent drugs, both fentanyl as well as carfentanil, which may require more reversal agent than we ever did before. Yeah. Well, it's important to note, and, and I know there's a perspective out there that if we could get people off these addictions or dependency, if they weren't using to begin with, uh, then there wouldn't be this risk. But, you know, we, we've got, as I said earlier, some overlapping issues here, the addiction side and, and the overdose side. So how do they overlap and do they require kind of different approaches in a way? You know, uh, one of the big things that uh, as addiction physician that I know is that uh, addiction more or less works on the same parts of the brain. It doesn't matter which uh, substance you're addicted to, whether it's alcohol, um, whether it's fentanyl, whether it's uh, cannabis. They all work along many very much the same pathways. And so um, and what we also see clinically is that a lot of individuals have multiple substances that they're addicted to. Uh, on the street level, we often see that people are addicted to stimulants such as crystal meth and opioids at the same time. 
And so it's not really dealing with uh, just the opioid use disorder per se. It's dealing with all the other addiction pieces to it, but it doesn't end there. There's other aspects that we need to take care of as well. So these are the psychosocial aspects of treating addiction. So that includes things such as mental health concerns. This, this includes treating their trauma they might have had in the past, but also dealing with sort of upstream social determinants of health, like housing, income support, getting them off the streets, getting them to a safe environment. These are all key important aspects of dealing with substance use disorders holistically. Uh, and it's something that, uh, that I'm hopeful that we can coordinate, but it's a sort of a trans-sectoral issue. Uh, you know, it intersects with social services, intersects with justice, it intersects with healthcare. Um, so it's a very complex problem, but we need as much coordination as we can. So what about this idea then of, of in certain cases, and, and the Alberta government seems to, to it would be of the opinion that they want to set the bar high. It would have to go before a court. You'd have to make an argument that somebody's a risk to themselves or to others. But the idea of forcing individuals into treatment, what, what does the evidence tell us about that? Well, the, it depends on how you look at the evidence, but definitely evidence shows that it's not uh, any more beneficial than voluntary treatment. That's what we've seen in the past with uh, based on systematic reviews. What we've also seen as well is that from a program evaluation perspective, that there could be definite detriments to uh, involuntary treatment in comparison to voluntary treatment. It hasn't really worked in any jurisdiction, and there's multiple for that. Uh, for one, for example, things are not standardized in terms of treatment options for individuals. Not everyone was getting opioid agonist treatment, uh, which is our sort of our, our gold standard for treating opioid use disorders. Um, and so in general, it's not as effective and it hasn't worked anywhere. And so it begs the question as to how and why it would work here in Alberta. The one thing to keep and, and be mindful of is that um, uh, when you look at mandated treatment, you have to sort of look at what it's weighed against. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, if it's weighed against voluntary treatment, it seems that voluntary treatment is the superior way to go. Uh, ideally, we would incentivize treatment. That would be, I think, sort of the sort of the, the best option to get more people to treatment. We also don't have enough capacity right now for people who want to enter voluntary treatments. So we definitely have to yeah. build that capacity. But when you weigh mandated treatment against prison time, for instance, when you weigh those two against each other, it might be more and make more sense to have mandated treatment in that circumstance. Uh, but outside of that circumstance, it doesn't make sense to have mandated treatment at all. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, a situation where an individual has been arrested is charged with a crime that's you know clearly related to what it is they're going through. If the choice is, OK, otherwise this would result in a jail sentence. But here's another option. You can avoid jail by going into treatment. That, that's a reasonable approach then. Indeed, in my mind it is. And again, it's weighing against uh, jail time. But if you're weighing it against voluntary treatment, that is a completely separate situation. The other concern that we have is how do you determine someone's a danger to themselves? Um, that's something that's very yeah. difficult to do. And, and, and it it's involves a lot of expertise and, and it may go against human rights. And so we have to be very careful how we tread there. Absolutely. Well, we'll leave it there for now, Dr. Ghosh. Appreciate the insight on all of this. Thank you so much for joining us here this morning.